Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. We are doing what uh, Jesus liked to do often when he preached sermons, and that is answer the people's questions. So like the video showed, we took a survey of you all and online and some other ways, and we compiled the most asked questions. We're spending a few weeks exploring uh, the answers to those. And this week's question number three is about spiritual warfare. People wanted to know about the devil and demons, and can he attack us? and all those types of things. And those are all good questions. I know that can be very confusing for people because on the one end, you you have all these crazy movies about exorcism and like casting demons out and all that kind of stuff. But then on the other hand, you've got a number of Christian people who say things uh, and attribute the devil to everything in their life that goes wrong. You know, talking about the the cell phone devil made my, my battery run dead and the, the demon demons are just trying to get my my cell phone and no you just forgot to charge your cell phone you know what i'm saying like there's no demon in your cell phone there's no cell phone devil admittedly though uh my girl siri can be a bit condescending when she speaks to me but uh, that's just something her and i need to work out it's not it has nothing to do with the devil so so i get it there's a lot of weird information floating around about the devil and demons and how they operate and all that so i'm i'm glad you asked that particular question specifically because as a pastor sometimes I'm nervous that the devil is working harder at trying to trip you up than you are at trying to keep it from happening. So sometimes the devil's working hard at convincing you he's not there, that he's not real. He's working hard at convincing you that what you're doing or you're thinking isn't that big of a deal. He's working hard at lulling you into inaction. Sin is a narcotic. It's putting you to sleep regarding the war you're supposed to be fighting. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, Pastor, you seem like a knowledgeable young man. You seem very intellectually in tune with the world. I Thank you. I, I appreciate you complimenting me. So how is it Knowing that about you, Pastor, how is it that you could possibly believe in a man in red pajamas with horns and a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder telling you what you should or shouldn't do? How, how can you be so naive as to believe that the devil is real? To which I would respond, I don't. At least not in the way you just described it. I don't believe in a pitchfork carrying little red man on your shoulder type of devil. I believe what the Bible says about the devil which is that he was an angel who fell from heaven. In other words, the devil isn't some force or voice or spiritual reckoning. The devil is real. Let me say it to you like this. You can't believe in Jesus and not believe in the devil. I'm going to show you why I say that. Let me show you what I mean. It's in Luke 10, 18. It says, And he, Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, Those eight words that Jesus just spoke have monumental implications. First of all, you can't say you don't believe in this and then in turn believe everything else Jesus says. You have to trust all of what he says or that makes Jesus a liar. Are you tracking with me? So we have to believe this. So if you don't believe that he saw Satan fall from heaven, then you can't believe anything about the forgiveness of sins and eternal life either. Second of all, Jesus just equates himself to God, right? I saw Satan fall from 
heaven like lightning, which would imply that Jesus was in heaven at the time Satan fell. At worst, he was on earth and looked up and saw Satan fell. You could, you could interpret it that way if you wanted to, which begs the question then, well, when did Satan fall? Good question. We know that uh, from Scripture that Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden. So at minimum, thousands of years before Jesus spoke this, was at minimum, Jesus is a few thousand years old at the time. So it's my contention that Satan got kicked out of heaven shortly after human beings were created. I believe that he saw their glory. He saw how God interacted with them, how God loved them, how he gave them all kinds of good gifts. And, and Satan said that, and, and he looked at that and, and saw how in return the pair of human beings worshipped God. And he said, I want that. I want to be worshipped. I'm seeing what this looks like, and I feel like I'm deserving of it. I am a powerful angel. Revelation tells us Lucifer, Satan, was the most powerful of all angels. So he convinces one-third of the other angels that are in heaven with him that he's deserving of worship, so in return, God kicks him out of heaven. He falls like lightning. Now, my main point here is not to try and prove to you that the devil is real because the Bible says we actually have three enemies. There's the devil, but there's also your flesh and the world. That's our three enemies, the world, the devil, and uh, your flesh. What you're taught is kind of how the world operates. Your flesh is kind of like your genetic predisposition towards something. Finally, the devil, that's very spiritual. That being said, I don't want to spend the bulk of my time this morning trying to convince you that the devil is real. You're either going to believe that or not. Furthermore, evil is very much multidimensional. It can be in you. That's in your flesh. It can be around you. That's the world. Or it can be under you. That's the devil. Now, the kicker is the devil operates in all three realms. So here's what I did. You can see there in your notes, I put a whole host of passages about the devil. I put them here on screen as well in case you want to write them down, you didn't grab notes or whatever. But uh, what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is show you what you can do about the fact that the devil is real. And not only is he real, but he's at war with us. You asked for it. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. You're going to want to open it up towards the back of your Bible. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be at. Ephesians uh, is kind of in a weird uh, place in the New Testament, but it'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. If you're in Philippians, you've gone too far. Uh, You want the big number 6. While you're getting there, let me kind of set up what we're about to read in Ephesians. Laura and I currently have three kids, Leighton, Lana, and Lenny. We stuck with the L theme, which was a huge mistake because I can't remember any of their names, to be honest, but uh, other people can't either. So nonetheless, uh, our third born is Lenny. She's got a, a birthmark on her side. I don't know why, because none of my other kids had birthmarks. And uh, I tried to figure that out. You know, it's just kind of how my mind works. I was wondering about the birthmark. So I got on the interwebs. The very first medical journal I read says this, and I quote, medical science has yet to determine why birthmarks occur. I thought, great, you know, I mean, we can put a man on the moon, we can't figure out why birthmarks show up. Awesome. Now, I don't know if this is because science couldn't determine the cause for birthmarks or whatever, but the very 
next sentence within that is uh, that sometimes birthmarks are called stork bites, as if to imply the moment a, a stork dropped off my child at the front door, perhaps the blanket slipped out of its mouth or whatever, in a desperate attempt to rescue said baby, the stork recklessly bit the child and then dropped him off at the door. Stork bites. That's the best we could come up with. What, like, what lunatic even decided the stork was the appropriate analogy for how the kids showed up at the house to begin with? Did the story just evolve over time? Was it, was it pterodactyls? To, you know, and those dinosaurs went extinct. We decided storks. That seems logical. Whatever the case may be, I learned the hard way that a stork did not drop my baby off. Uh, the real-life horror movie that was childbirth was <laughs> something... Well, come to think about it, maybe that's how the stork theory actually came into existence. Some well-meaning dad, after witnessing a human being being pumped out of his wife, decided, man, there's no way I can tell the other kids what I just witnessed in there. I'm, I'm trying to repress that memory myself, so... So about that time that he's, he's trying to figure out what he's going to tell the kids, a stork flies by, a flish, you know, is flopping around his mouth or so. He's like, I, the stork, it's marvelous. I'll tell them the stork dropped the baby off. Kids don't know any different, right? You know, I mean, next day, though, the kids see dad changing the diaper. There's a birthmark. They're like, what is that? Is it a stork bite? You know, a stork, stork must have bit the kid. I don't, I don't know. But uh, here's what we do know. In John 3, 3, Jesus tells us that in order to inherit eternal life, we must be born again. And what we're going to read in Ephesians is going to tell us that upon this new birth, you're going to be born with a birthmark. The moment you trust Jesus as your Savior and you say, I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. I, I believe that this conquered sin. I believe that I can be forgiven the moment the Holy Spirit of God illuminates your eyes to the truth of Jesus and you are spiritually born again. You'll inherit a birthmark. You can jot it down this way. The birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back. The birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back. When people ask you tomorrow, hey, what did you do yesterday? You can say, oh, I went to church. You say, well, what did the pastor talk about? You'll say, the birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back, to which they'll respond, what does that mean? Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse number 10. It says, finally, pause. I promise we'll get through the rest of the Scripture faster than that. But this is a big deal because the author of Ephesians, a guy named Paul, he formulates this magnificent letter to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about grace and faith and the gospel and prayer and love and husbands and wives and children. And after this beautiful expose, he finally writes, finally, as if to imply, if you get nothing else, You have to get this. You know, a lot of people will tell you that when you write a letter, you should start, or any sort of uh, document, that, that you should start with your introduction and your conclusion first. The conclusion should summarize everything succinctly, and, and that's what Paul is trying to communicate in this epic conclusion of his letter. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, pause, any time we see therefore in the Bible, we should ask what's it therefore. Some of you are with me, that's okay. Uh, It's therefore a transition between we are at war Not with flesh and blood, not with that bully at school, not with that annoying coworker, not with that family member who drives you nuts, not with flesh and blood. We are at war with a spiritual enemy. And the Bible says, therefore, because you are at war, take up the whole whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance. All right, let's chat because you asked for it. What's up with spiritual warfare? Is that even a thing, Pastor? To which my answer is absolutely. Now, I first tried to show you how the devil is real and how we've got to uh, trust in what Jesus says about him, but then I went on this tangent about birthmarks and storks, and then I had the audacity to tell you to write down that the birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back, yet nowhere in this passage did it say anything about a bullseye or a birthmark or a back. How dare you, pastor, right? Well, bear with me a moment. Maybe I'm just reading too much into this, but it just said you had to put on the belt of truth. That's integrity. So I need to live with integrity. And it says I need to put on my breastplate of righteousness, which is all about my purity. The breastplate guards my heart. So I've got to guard my heart against things like lust and greed and, and all that. And then it says I got to put my shoes on. I mean, if y'all know that's circled in my Bible, right? You got to have some good, you got to have some clean shoes. <laughs> tell Laura when I come home from the mall, which is where I like to do my, my street ministry uh, at the, at the Foot Locker, I say, I said, baby, these are my shoes of the gospel of peace. This is, this is what Jesus told me to do in Ephesians. I'm just trying to be obedient, baby. I'm just, you know, I'm bound by the book. So I just got to do, do what I've told to do. Paul says, put on the shoes of peace. Then he goes, oh, don't forget your shield right? The shield is important. This is the shield of faith. This is believing in what God said versus believing in what you see. That's faith. And then he goes, by the way, you're going to need this helmet of salvation. It's going to protect your mind once you're saved. The, the God of the universe, he's going to renew how you think. And as some of you are not thinking rightly, you're, you're thinking about anxiety and depression. And I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But Paul says we need this helmet and, and you need all of these defensive weapons Why? In order to stand firm, which he tells us to do four times in the passage. And only then, after he gives us this list of all these defensive weapons, does he, does he give us an offensive weapon? And he says, you're going to need your sword, which is the word of God. In fact, in Hebrews, it it says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Kind of like in the bodyguard when, when Kevin Costner pulls off the scarf, uh, 
a Whitney and throws it up in the air. Y'all, y'all young people don't know nothing about Kevin Costner and <laughs> dating myself or Field of Dreams and Dances with Wolf. Nobody's even following what I'm saying. All right, all right. But he throws up this blade, and the scarf, you know, floats down, and it and it cuts the scarf in half. And it, and it, and the Bible says, "I'm sharper than Kevin and Whitney's sword." Well, the Bible doesn't say that specific. I mean, it's inferred in the text, but that's what it's saying. And I'm sharper than this. Except, you know, what Ephesians doesn't say anything about. It doesn't say anything about protecting your back. It doesn't say anything about covering your spine. The imputation there is that you'll be fighting the devil head on. You'll be looking your enemy right in the eye. I mean, you kind of have to if your only offensive weapon is a sword. You're going to have to be close enough to the devil to, to stab him with a sword, kind of like when Jesus was tempted in three times. He says, no, it is written. And the devil tried to get at him. He said, no, it's written. And the devil the third time says, but, but I can do that. And Jesus says, no, it is written. The devil scampers off. See, we're in a fight. Did you know that one of the primary themes that you'll read in the Bible, if you read the entire thing from beginning to end, the primary thing that you'll see is God using this word, repent. He says, repent, over and over. Repent in the Old Testament. He says, repent. He tells his people, repent. The common three theme that you see in the New Testament, repent. John the Baptist talks about repent. And well, the word for repentance in the New Testament specifically is a Greek word, uh, metanoia. It literally means to turn around. So you're going one way. You repent. You decide to go back the other way. So when the Bible says repent, that's what it's saying. It's saying turn and fight. Repent. In other words, at one point in your life, you're walking away from God, and when He reveals Himself to you and you trust in Him and His Son, now you're heading towards Him. The bad news is there's a devil standing in your way. The good news is you've got armor and you've got power. Come on, somebody. So as long as you continue to face God, the devil can't get at you. The devil's whole goal in life is for you to turn your back on Him. That's what I mean when I say the birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back. If you show the devil where you're unprotected, then he can fire these little flaming darts at you. Let's chat a little bit about darts. I don't know if you've ever played darts before, but they're generally pretty small. You want to be able to just flick them with one hand. You just flick, boom, double, ten, right, boom, triple, twenty. It's worth more than a bullseye. You want the triple, twenty. Just a helpful tip for you. It's it's all there in your wrist, though. You You just fire... The, do- the darts. Uh, there's a misconception that, that uh, once you're a Christian, that, that your, your goal is to see how far from the devil you can get, and that's really not true. I mean, if, if perfect Jesus, God of the universe, uh, is getting tempted, then you're going to get tempted. What's cool, though, is the longer you're a Christian, the stronger your armor gets. That's the difference. You're like that gladiator who comes out of retirement all scarred up and disfigured. And, and you've seen it all, though. You've fought the good fight. But, that, but that's how the devil is trying to get at you. Little, little darts, little flick. They're, they're small. The, the devil's not trying to get you with big things. He starts small. The problem is, is these little tiny darts, they're on fire. And so if you're not careful, these little tiny darts will engulf you into flames. It's why people all the time say stuff like, I just never saw it coming. I never thought this would happen. I don't know what, what the deal is. 
Well, what happened was you didn't put out the fire. Started on your lawn and now your house is in flames. You turned your back. That's what happened. Because the birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back. The devil doesn't want you following Jesus. He wants to throw whatever you're tempted by your way. He wants your praise. But listen, here's the good news about these flaming darts. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for a family to tear apart or a future to rip away. He's looking for an addiction to put into somebody. It's what he does. Now, many of you all know that my dad works in law enforcement. I'm thankful for all the men and women who work in law enforcement and the military and What's unfortunate about military and, and law enforcement folks is they have to wear these, these vests, this armor to, to protect themselves. And what's really unfortunate about uh, this armor specifically is that, that there's armor in the back, right? Because uh, if you're a police officer, you don't want to get ambushed. You need some armor in your back. That way you're protected in your back. You don't know what's coming for you. Well, Ambushes is not how the devil works. You see what it, what it says there. It says that the devil is walking around like a prowling kind of lion, but what's the prowling lion doing? He's roaring. He's roaring. Somebody say roaring. 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 It's a tough word to say. I had to practice that a few times in my office. But he's roaring. I was going to make all of you roar, but I thought it might freak some of the guests out, so uh, that's... That's, that's all right, but over the summer, uh, Laura uh, bought our family a pass to the, do, to the zoo. She clearly overestimated how much time I would be spending at the zoo, but, uh, <laughs> but one morning we managed to round up our litter of children and, and go to the zoo, and I, I kept hearing this sound. Keep in mind, I'm new to the whole experience of the zoo. Laura and some of you other stay-at-home moms, you all live at the zoo, which is fine, but but it's a little overwhelming for me with the kids and the noise and the birds and the things walking around. I finally asked Laura, what is that sound? She said, it's the lion. He's roaring on the other end of the zoo. I said, where's the lion at? She said, oh, he's way over there, the opposite end. But I could hear it. See, see, roaring lions don't sneak up on anything. You know when a roaring lion is around. There is no ambush. There is no sneak attack. As a Christian, there is no ambush or sneak attack waiting for you either. You might feel like it sometimes, but that's just because you probably turned your back on the devil. You've got to be able to see him. You couldn't see him in order to defend your unprotected back. Here's something else important to notice. Just a couple pages to your left there in Ephesians. Paul tells us to be angry, but to not sin. We can't let the sun go down on our anger and give an opportunity to the devil. In other words, our enemy is strong enough. You don't need to light his darts for him. And yet some of you are doing that exact thing because you know what tempts you. You know what your heart desires and when it's operating in the flesh and not in the power of God. And, and too often you're exposing your bullseye and not just that, you're lighting up the torches for the devil. So let's do a couple things with the time that we have left. First of all, let's name some of these darts that the devil uses and, and flicks and, 
and, and tries to fling at you. And let's chat about how we can defend ourselves against them. First of all, some darts. Here's just a small compiling of what I could think of in my office. Feel free to add to this list, but these are the things that the devil will use to flick these darts at your bullseye on your back. Here they are. Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, hate, malice, envy, jealousy, insecurity, inferiority, fear, rejection, self-pity, self-hate, anger, rage, murder, violence, sexual immorality, impurity, adultery, fornication, lust, pornography, pride, lying, deception, manipulation, control, criticism, judgmentalism, arrogance, prejudice, racism, greed, materialism, selfishness, covetousness, selfish ambition, depression, anxiety, worry, suicide, self-hate, addiction, dependency, alcoholism, drunkenness, drugs, obesity, rebellion to authority, heresy, false doctrine, stealing, slothfulness, laziness. You all getting some out of this? Unbelief, guilt, shame, embarrassment, humiliation, blasphemy, sickness, disease, coarse joking. I I keep going if you all want me to keep going. This is just stuff listed in your Bible that says these are some of the ways the devil's going to try and get at you. This is what your armor is for. Stamping out these little darts that the devil's trying to flick at you. Now, let me be clear about a couple things. As I already mentioned, evil is multidimensional. So hear me when I say mental illness is a real thing. And sometimes simple prayer isn't enough to heal your thought life or your addictions. So I'm all for getting medical help if you need it. But I'm also saying sometimes your help that you need is not from the medical field. Perhaps something spiritual is going on as well. Genetics, your environment, that can all play a factor, so don't send me any emails about that. But the devil is real, and he's got ammo, and he's flinging stuff in your direction. And if you're not careful, and you haven't suited up with a whole armor and put on that helmet to guard some of your thought life, then the devil's going to get at you. But listen very close to me. There are powerful things inside of you. Do you hear me? If you're a Christian and you're operating in God's strength and in the full armor of God, you cannot be stopped. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Hallelujah, somebody. This is great news. Look back at verse 10. Finally, be strong in who? Lord, and in the strength of whose might? His might. In other words, this is big. Temptation is not a test of my self-control. Temptation is a test of my relationship with God. This is a big deal. Your ability to defeat the devil and the little flaming darts, it has nothing to do with you. This is not your strength. This is about the promise of God who says, do this in my strength. Let me say this another way that maybe can help you. You might jot this down. Anonymity breeds sin. Being by yourself, not being known, it breeds 
sin. If you're doing life by yourself, then you're not going to be able to defeat the devil. Why? Because God said it's not good for man to be alone. James says confess your sin to God so that you can be forgiven. And then he goes on to say confess your sin to one another. Why? So that you can be healed. You've got to do this in a community of believers. Furthermore, you have blind spots. Sometimes you've got to have people come in and pull the darts out of your shield before it ignites all the flames. You might be headed the right direction. You might be following God, but the devil doesn't have to get a bullseye to start you on fire. You hearing what I'm saying? You need somebody to help you. And it can't just be your spouse. You've got to get other people involved in your life to help shield you from these blind spots, to help pull these darts from your life, to say, man, I see this in you. You need to get this out of your life. This is why I'm so passionate about you getting involved in a small group. You can't fight this war by yourself. Now look at verse 11. It says, Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now here's the problem. Suiting up for battle is not very glamorous. Putting on this vest trying to figure out these stupid straps. I have no idea what to even do. Like, this isn't the most glamorous thing in life to do. Nobody remembers heroes for how well they wore their armor. Nobody's thinking of, like, Achilles and Alexander and Arthur because of how they laced up their boots. They remember them because of how they fought. Yet here's what's cool about God. If you'll read your Bible carefully, you'll see more often than not, it's simple acts of obedience that lead to extraordinary outcomes. Abraham left his hometown. Noah started nailing some wood together. Moses had to climb up a mountain. But these simple acts of obedience, God used to do something amazing. Here's what I'm telling you. He'll do the same thing in your life if you'll let him. Just like the men and women of our police forces can't forget their armor, you can't forget yours. Let me close like this. I don't know how many of you all remember where you were at when 9-11 happened. I was in a chemistry lab in college. Remember it very clearly. Remember right where I was sitting. But one of the images I can remember most vividly about the whole event, is when George Bush was sitting there reading that book to kids. Does anybody remember seeing this on the news? And, and his chief of staff, a guy named Andrew Card, calmly walks up and whispers in his ear, America is under attack. You remember how his expression changed on his face when he heard those words, America is under attack? Well, you asked me, what's up with spiritual warfare? Are we under attack? And the simple answer is yes. Listen to me, everybody. Look right at me. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or sword? No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Isn't that exciting? 
We are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. This is why anytime somebody claims to be a Christian and says to me, I'm bored. I'm like, no, you're just boring. You can't be bored. How can you be bored? We're in the middle of a fight. You can't be bored. If you're bored, you're not doing it right. You're not lacing up. You're not in the fight. You must have turned your back because there's no reason you can be bored. Furthermore, sometimes in life, the Bible tells us that we got to bear one another's burdens, which means for a season, you might be fighting somebody else's fight. How many of y'all know sometimes you got to live on somebody else's faith for a little while? There's a season in life where you got to trust because somebody else is trusting and you can't see the end for yourself. You can't be bored. This is the most exciting news in the history of the world that you don't have to live the same way you've You've been told to live. That the, the God of the universe wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to give you life and give it to the full. He says what you're looking for in the world and in your heart, and if I don't redeem that, you're never going to find happiness. You can only find it in me. That's why you can't turn your back. Birthmark of a believer is a bullseye on your back. There's no armor back there. Put on the full armor. Stand and face the fight because we are more than conquerors. Everybody stand up on your feet. We're going to close with this song in the name of Jesus because we are more than conquerors. Let's go, band. Give me some, some more than conquering music.